So this morning, we are going to wrap up a short series we've been doing, sort of inspired by the fire of Notre Dame. This idea of being in a body and material and also spirit and how those things interplay. And again, that's all of our Christian life, really, discipleship, is what do we do being embodied and in a, in a creation and that we're spirit together, uh, how we respect each other, how we act towards one another, how we act towards creation, our work, our skills, uh, and also the sense that I want to get into this third one today is sort of the blessedness of this idea of play or taking delight and that that's something that we're also created for. Um, the big idea this morning, if you're going to follow along in your outline, is like, and this is a paraphrase from a medieval theologian, Thomas Aquinas, and he said this, God plays, God plays. Say that with me. For some of you, that will be just liberating to say it. God plays. God plays. Okay, you're awake. All right, great. God creates playing, meaning out of God's abundance. And man, meaning men and women, should play if he or she is to live as humanly as possible and to know reality since it is created by God's playfulness. There's a lot actually in that statement, but the sense of creation itself is out of the superabundance of the Trinitarian love God just creates out of abundance. God didn't need to create. He didn't, there was no required that he had to create something outside of God's self in order to, to be who God is. God creates out of sheer abundance and desire for creation to have a relationship by its own freedom with God. So God creates out of playfulness. Think about that. And we talked a lot about the brokenness of the matter and body and spirit issues last Sunday, but this Sunday we're going to focus more on the blessedness, the superabundance of the outpouring of God in the very act of creating. And in fact, in creating Adam and Eve, as we read the stories in Genesis 1 and 2, that they are also commissioned in God's image and likeness to also be creators not just simply in sort of procreating, certainly that was part of it, but also tend the garden, engage in creative work, and also walking with the Lord in the garden. Adam would walk with the Lord, and they would have communion, and they would have relationship that was just there for relationship, not related to the creation of work, but just the delight of being with someone in creation. And this is what we might talk about, the idea of the creative work of play, not just the creative work of work, but also play. I'll give you a little more here. Have you ever been lost in an activity where you just got caught up into it? And you just sort of lost all sense of time. And we've talked about this before, but we're going to unpack it a little more this morning than we have before here at Pilgrim. I mentioned before as a kid, there, you know, when you play, there's things you do. And if you can remember a good childhood memory where you just time lost a sense of meaning, relationships changed when you were in the midst of the game or the sport or just playing whatever, think of those times, how your very relationship with others changed and your sense of time changed and your sense of who you were changed and how when you got out of play time, there was something empowering about it. Something that sent you back, and if, if you were, again, the, the brokenness and blessedness piece, you also might have been angry being pulled out of playtime as a child. But this sense, because there was something joyful in that and empowering and liberating in that play. I think about other aspects of it. I swim, I haven't done as much in Vancouver, because holy cow, the community center pools and the lanes, like you've got to fight for people, man. It's vicious in there. Man, those old men and ladies, no offense, old men and ladies, boy, in those lanes, they're like, they're lane hogs, watch out. But anyway, but there was a season where I did a lot more swimming or, or kayaking, 
And I would get lost in it. There's something beautiful about being in the water or on the water. Your phone, you generally don't take that with you in the pool. Like there's no, like there's a, a, just a sense sort of a, uh, a calmness that you enter into of that. Think about playing a good game, whether it's a board game or a sport that you really enjoy, and you get caught up in it and, and it sort of sucks you in. This is that sense of delight and play that I think is vitally important for us to understand in common grace that's accessible by anyone everywhere. And that play also points to something what we might call revealed or special grace of when we begin to name that experience and it draws us into there's something greater going on in the world and it also can point us towards God. In worship in the church, good worship, and we're not just talking about singing the songs, but what we do draws us in to also the sense of God's spirit at work and moving in our midst with our spirits and our spirits as a community. And in that place, we can also be enraptured up into this, caught up into this experience and be empowered when we name the name of Jesus together and we experience his spirit loose in the body of believers. That is a form of what I would call that special grace or revealed grace play of the spirit. So there's common grace experience that everyone can have. And when you come to Jesus, there's an additional sort of encounter of empowerment that you can have in worship and being caught up into that. So this idea of the play, that we don't do it for some other outcome except for first and foremost to enjoy and delight and to experience what does it mean to be alive? Why, why do we do these other things? And part of it is to be, experience this fullness of humanity and aliveness in God, in Christ. But God also blesses us out in common grace areas as well. Now, that may seem deep, but it's really not. We're just giving words to something that's rather simple that you probably experience all the time. I have a ritual of coffee in the morning. Do I need the coffee in the morning? Absolutely not. I often drink decaf now in my old age uh, because it's less anxiety and heart pain later. I don't have to deal with that. So in my old age, it's more decaf. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know what I mean? But there's something about delighting in the material creation. There's something about taking delight in embodiedness. And this draws us in for that moment. And we have these experiences all of the time in common grace. And there's also the experience in worship and the experience of Christianity that can draw us into even a more transforming encounter with the Lord in, when we uh, engage in relationship with him as well. Does that make sense? That's a long unpacking of one very simple idea. I think we'll, we'll, we'll give you a little more there. Um, Let's read from Scripture this morning. I'm going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 9 through 23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. 2 Samuel is in the Old Testament. And uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, or chapter 6, rather, verses 9 through 23. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 9. Oh, wait a second. I would, 6. Sorry, my dyslexia is kicking in here. I literally have 6, 9 through 23 on my notes, and I read 9. Do any of you have that problem? I don't know. I do that all the time. It created problems with math as a child. I had to look and look again and look again. Otherwise, I would reverse the numbers around. There we go. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 9 through 23. Uh, this is New King James. I think I'm going to read actually what I have in my notes here. Um, it says this. David was frightened by the Lord that day. How will I ever bring the Lord's chest or the ark to me, which was this piece 
that was built, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Israelites were in the desert, and it contained the, supposedly the Ten Commandments within there, and it was the place where the worship of the camp was centered on. The Ark would be within this tent they made, uh, and so they would experience God's presence, God's manifest presence in this chest, this Ark. Will the Ark ever come to me, he asked, verse 10. So David didn't take the Ark away with him to David's city. Instead, he had it put in the house of Obed-Edom, who was from Gath. The Lord's ark stayed with Obed-Edom's household in Gath for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom's household and all that he had. So this ark was a place where the, the people of Israel were to meet with God's presence. The priests and the Levites would minister. It was this sense of a location, an object that was used as a center of worship. The God was not the ark itself, but the manifest, made-known presence of God was there around this thing. And now the ark had been in this other household, and because of the mere this symbol and this place of the presence of God, everything was blessed. You could preach a whole sermon on this idea of cultivating mindfulness of God's presence in our neighborhood and in our coffee shops and in the McDonald's on the corner and in our, our schools and wherever God has placed us, that now we are the living temple, that we can cultivate God's presence and you have a blessing power wherever you are if you choose to pause enough to be awake and mindful of God's presence. That's not my sermon this morning, but it's good, isn't it? Amen? <laughs> you can cultivate that. And you can become a walking blessing to those around you. Wherever you are, revival could break out. Think of that. Verses 12, King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and everything he has because God's ark being there. So David went and brought God's ark up from Obed-Edom's house to David's city with celebration. Whenever those bearing the ark advance six steps, so get this, there's... There's established ritual here in the procession of the ark to David's city. When they advanced six steps, David sacrificed an ox and fatling calf. So there was a lot of sacrificing going on. There was planned ritual around the returning of this ark, the symbol of God's presence. So there's this planned sense of liturgy going on. Verse 14, David dressed in a linen priestly vest and danced. He clearly was not North American Baptist, but he danced... With all his strength. Well, maybe he was a charismatic North American Baptist. I've met some of them. They do exist. He danced with all his strength before the Lord. He danced with all his strength. Love the Lord your God with all your, well, you know, heart, mind, soul, strength. And this is how David and his entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's ark with shouts and trumpet blasts. We could talk about dancing shouts and trumpet blasts. I think we, we, got, a, we got a ways to go. Andreas... Dancing, shouts, trumpet blasts next Sunday. <laughs> right here. And I have people, I have, and some of you will be recruited for this. So it was a, it was a joyful celebration. There was a sense of, of engagement and, and even a party of God's presence. So verse 16, follow along with this story in, in the Hebrew Bible here. As the Lord's Ark entered into David's city, Saul's daughter Michael who was one of David's wives, was watching from a window and she saw King David jumping and dancing before the Lord and she lost all respect for him. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> Hear more of the story. The Lord's ark was brought in and put in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it and David 
offered entirely burned offerings in the Lord's presence in addition to well-being sacrifices. So there was a holy barbecue along with additional sacrifices of thanks and praise and just celebration that this place of meeting God's manifest presence was now brought into the middle of David's city as David is solidifying his rule over the tribes of Israel and, and solidifying his reign and his sort of uh, his uh, kingly peace within the priestly class and the Levites as well. And, and so he's the center of worship and he's owning it as the king of the people and solidifying his rule. So when David had finished offering the offerings and the sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. He distributed food among all the people of Israel. Like if you're going to be a good king, this is what you do. There's sort of a, a, a right kind of justice and redistribution going on to the whole crowd, male and female, each receiving a loaf of bread, a date cake and a raisin cake, and then all the people went back home. Then David went home, verse 20, if you're following along, to bless his household. But Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him, not even before he gets all the way home. How did Israel's king honor himself today, she said, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants. Apparently, he got a little crazy in his dancing and of his subjects like any indecent person would do, as if the king was just a crazy drunkard sitting on the side of the road uh, peeing in the bushes kind of thing is how she's saying. Like, and David replied to Michael, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father. David's getting a little salty with her if you pick that up. That's, a, that's, that's not so untransparent, or that's a very transparent dig, right? Who chose me over your father and his entire family. Did David have to go there? Probably not, his own sinfulness. But, and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people, over Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord again. I'll do it again, by the way. May I humiliate myself even more, and may I be humbled in my own eyes, but I will be honored by those servants you were talking about. And then there's this last little zinger of a verse. It says, Michael, Saul's daughter, had no children to the day she died. And most scholars say this is not talking about infertility. That's, that's a totally different situation. But talking about the fact that David and Saul, David and, David and Saul, well, that would be a whole other issue, but David and Michael never came together again. Now, in the ancient world, he had concubines and other wives, so it wasn't like he was choosing to go sexless in his life, but with her, that relationship did not happen again. Think about that. David valued the worship so much that he was willing to cut somebody else out of his life in that. Think about that. That's some pretty wild stuff going on there. Let's pray, and we'll get into the rest of this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. And as we just rest a little more with play, art, and worship today, and, uh, and, and sport as well, that you would just be with us and guide us. I'm a saint and sinner in process like everyone else here. Um, I know there's more accountability for those that teach, and so that does weigh on me every time I'm in front of anybody teaching and talking about your word and who you are. So, Lord, take these words and take them to, to the place where only you can by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So all of that to set up this idea of the importance and the concept of being caught up in the Spirit of God and that there's something God does in that place. Uh, Mark Buchanan tells a story about a woman named Wanda. And uh, Wanda was an alcoholic. He shares this back in 2008. And uh, Wanda did well for about eight months. She had gotten her her life cleaned up, got into Alpha and a 12-step program, got her kids back, and then she fell off the wagon. In and out and mostly out of rehab, Mark tells the story of Wanda. She vanished. 
But then one day she called again sober after a year of rehab in Vancouver, and she was getting out the next week, and she asked if she could come home. Her first Sunday back to the church, Mark says, I initially didn't recognize this woman. She looked healthy, dressed, and in her right mind. Her first Sunday back, I initially didn't recognize her. She looked, again, like, like something had changed dramatically. And he said, that Sunday I was preaching on the ten lepers Jesus healed, and the one, a Samaritan, who again were looked down on by the rest of the Jewish nation, the Samaritans were, who returned to Jesus to give thanks for the healing of leprosy. And I said that anyone who has been cleansed by Jesus, who wants to be made whole by him, not just Jesus' attack on to modify, but actually change, worships at his feet in deep thankfulness and utmost desperation. They have nowhere else they want to go. And then to close his sermon, he said, I reminded people that we have a tradition in our church that anyone can come up to the front and pray with one of our prayer ministers. So Wanda came forward, he said. But she didn't go to a prayer minister. Instead, she walked right up onto the platform and stood next to the worship team at the end. And she raised her hands in worship. And he goes on and says, she, she didn't go to the prayer minister, but she was, yeah, between the guitarist and the drummer, stretched her hands heavenward and she worshiped. And he puts it this way, as that one leper returning to give thanks for his complete healing by Jesus. A woman who didn't know her and who isn't on the prayer team walked up and put her arm around her and worshiped too. And then he said, then you could hear it ripple through the sanctuary. The rest of us began to worship with an even deeper thankfulness out of greater desperation of what they encountered. Out of the storeroom had come new treasures as well as old as the kingdom hovered very close. They entered into an encounter out of this thankfulness of what God has done in this woman's life. When the lost is returned, Luke 15, there's deep emotion called forth. You can use that emotion as a bridge to connect deeper with God. It doesn't leave, stay at the place of an emotional encounter, but you can choose then to take next steps into a living encounter with God through worship, through play, through uh, letting yourself, your, your boundaries down in a healthy way. Some of us have unhealthy boundaries that we need to let down emotionally when we worship and when we engage in the community and when we are engaged also in common grace play as well. But there's always some people that despise this sense of freedom and play. Michael, Saul's daughter, didn't get it. She didn't want to get it. She had heard the stories of God's presence around this Ark of the Covenant. She knew about the power around it, the manifest presence of God. But she herself would rather stand back aloof and judge than engage in the procession, than engage in the reception of the Ark coming into what would have been her husband's household. She decided to be in that place of despising. And it cost her dearly. She missed the point. And I think a lot of us, we miss the play of the God's spirit in worship and community because we forget that we are embodied and there is a call in which we engage to love the Lord our God with all that we are, including our embodiedness. And that when we do that, something changes in us. When you enter into that place and you let your guard down a little bit, whether it's in worship or game or sport, and you engage that, you are empowered if you let yourself go there. And good worship, and again, we're not just talking about the songs, but the whole of the gathering, and certainly the music as well, because art is a big part of this, uh, we can move into that place of transformation. But you have to let yourself get there. You have to let yourself go there. A few other things we should say here this morning. Are you still awake? Like, this is one of my favorite subjects, so I geek out just a little bit. So are you with me? 
nod your head. Okay, 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 all right. Some of you are faking it, but okay, it's fine. My next point is perfect for you then. Pretense versus play, if you're following along in your outline. Pretense is this sense of make-believe or lying to ourselves. Pretense is when we sort of, uh, as as some older folks would say, put on errors. Pretend that we're something that we're not in order to project an image to someone else uh, to control their perceptions of us. And in some situations that can be healthy, but in worship and art and beauty and and these encounters, we have to actually let down pretense because pretense is make-believe where play is actually entering into something that is really happening Uh, It's different than our non-play life, but it's something real for sure. Pretense is a deception towards others, hoping they don't see the real us. If you come into a worship gathering full of pretense, you will miss 80% of what God has for you. You will only maybe connect with the sermon, depending on the day and the preacher and the word, if it's for you or not, but you'll miss the encounter part of what we do when we gather here. One reason why I'd love for us to consider remodeling this room is so we can actually be a little more facing in the round, a little more engaged communally when we're in worship. But this idea of moving beyond pretense and and, and understand pretense blocks us from encountering God in worship. There are churches you'll go into, and thank God, cultural Christianity, there's a good aspect of the decline of cultural Christianity in North America because a lot of cultural Christians were about pretense. I went to church to be seen Uh, and to be heard, and to see others, and to hear them more than necessarily about being enraptured in the worship of of Jesus in that place. Like that kind of Christianity where people just come where you could set up whatever your denomination was. If you set up a Methodist church in in a a city in North America, then you'd attract Methodists that had moved there. That's almost all dead everywhere, right? Uh, And that sense of being in this sort of in-group. In fact, to be Christian is to be countercultural. You're going against secularism, you're going against atheism, you're going against Buddhism and, and Sikhism and Hinduism and Islam and, and Judaism. Like you're actually being super countercultural to choose the scandal of Christianity. So pretense is dying. People, I think fewer and fewer will come to church to try to, you know, it's not about so much about trying to get better economically or, or networking with other business people or whatever the issue is that's not Jesus. Play, other than pretense, in contrast, is an actual state of being, an actual thing you enter into by lowering your walls and unhealthy inhibitions. Now, note there are healthy boundaries, and I'm not saying don't lower them. That's when things go off the rails and sin enters in, but there is unhealthy walls that we have to deal with. It's an experience, a moment that's about entering into delight and some of what is most real about being human. Sometimes the church has written off the importance of delight, of game, of play, of good art and good sport. We've forgotten that all of those things are important for what it means to be human and to be empowered and then sent back out into non-play life differently than you were before you had that encounter, that play. The kingdom of God is upside down. It flips us over. Sometimes we think all we need is knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. I need more word. I need more uh, skills. And certainly knowledge matters. The Bereans studied to show themselves that they were approved. And and Paul says, you study the word to show yourself approved, a workman not ashamed, rightfully dividing. Like It's not wrong to have the knowledge. You need the knowledge of the scriptures. I sent an email out with some great resources on if you need some some kickstarting in that area. But the point of Scripture is to encounter the God of the Bible through the stories of the people that encountered him before and to know Jesus as a living Christ. So, again, we need both. Other biblical texts. Oh, i got to keep going here. It's holiday weekend. You're still awake. Some other biblical texts, quickly. Let's look at just a few more. If you're moving along in the outline, other biblical texts. 
So there is a tension in New Testament between growing up and being like a child, right? Now, you can either see that as a contradiction. I'll throw the whole thing out. It says to do both. Or you see it as dialectical. There's a tension and another truth that emerges that embraces bits of both of that. And so here we have in Ephesians 5 or 4, 15, it says, Instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Jesus. Our maturity is demonstrated in our relationships and community. Our maturity is demonstrated in how we handle relationships when we're in that non-play aspect and in play aspect, like how we do righteousness towards one another. That is about growing up, not uh, letting yourself be driven by every emotion that comes up. But on the other hand, we read verses that speak about this idea of, of being childlike. Jesus, he says this uh, again. I think I read this already, but... Oh, my notes, going in the right direction of my notes. In Matthew 18, he calls a child to them, and he placed a child among, and he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a sense in which in some things we are to grow up. In regards to our sinfulness, in regards to how we treat each other, grow up. Uh, Galatians 5, we read it last Sunday. We're called to grow into that so we might be more like Christ and less like sort of uh, angsty toddlers or teenagers in terms of our faith in Jesus. And then the other area were to be childlike and embracing wonder and delight and what we are calling play. Play is not about non-responsibility, but it's about understanding how play and non-play work together. You're empowered in one to live the other differently. Okay, a little more. Next, out, next point in the sermon is uh, we talked about pretense versus play. We talked about some biblical texts. There's more biblical texts, but I'm skipping over some of that. The, the last big point as we, as we move towards the end is performance versus play. There's a difference between performance and play, just as there's a difference between pretense and play. A good performance in game or art or sport or music can lead you into play, but it's not guaranteed. You can sing a song and never enter into the transforming encounter that's possible. You can perform well as a musician or a congregant, and you can never go past that because your guard is still too high. You're unwilling to let your emotion into it more. You're unwilling to risk more relationally, and your only concern or your primary concern is about the level of quality that others are experiencing. You're performing for someone else instead of for the sake of being captured up into the experience. The best performers... And you can see this too, whether it's your favorite sports person, your favorite whatever, pick a sport, pick a player. They get into it so much so that you say, well, it looks so natural, like they just do it. And they did all their performance stuff, but they have their game down so good that they can now just let themselves enter into it and release. Those that are not dealing with their emotional side will constantly be asking about, constantly be looking at, well, how is it going for the other person? How how are they experiencing my performance versus actually, I love to be enraptured into this where it goes from performance into play and they're changed. There's a difference between those things. In fact, entertainment and performance tends to make others non-players and non-performers. It tends to make them the audience instead of participants in it. Good worship, good game calls all of us into the game and to participate in it. We're all on the field playing together and delighting in it with certain rules, of course, and, and safe boundaries, but we're called into it and it changes us. 
You can look at a painting and move on. You can watch a game and move on. But if you're in the midst of painting the painting, you can get enraptured in it. If you're in the midst of playing the game, you can get caught up in it. And that is good. It is delight. The Father designed it, both creation of work and creation of play, that is part of being fully alive in God. And in the church, we name it as the revealed grace of Jesus in what we do when we gather in worship. Some other examples from Scripture about this idea of play and being enraptured up. David's dancing before the Lord, like we said, with Michael. Paul and Silas in jail in Acts 16, they're locked up. There's no one to observe them. There's, well, there's people in the other cells, but they're not doing it for performance. They're not doing it for entertainment. They're doing it because they've had a worship experience, and they know that in the midst of the most cruddy circumstances, beaten and shackled, that if they worship the Lord, the Spirit will enter in, and, and their spirit will commune, and they will be caught up into the play of the Holy Spirit. And even in the midst of the darkest place, they are empowered in the middle of jail because they let themselves be caught up in that experience. Some of you need that kind of worship experience in your life. To be caught up into that place. You're empowered in that place and then sent back out with new power into non-play life to do better creative work with the Lord in your circumstance. T.D. Jakes says with Paul and Silas, we're told later that uh, what happens as they're worshiping, I'm warm, I didn't bring my thing to... Need a Kleenex. Oh, look at this. For those of you that are not are change resistant, I bought Kleenexes for every just about every pew in here. So, sorry, a little warm here. Uh, I'm almost done. Say amen. Almost done. Come on, this is good stuff. Yeah, T.D. Jakes uh, preached this text. He said, "I don't think it was so much that God was trying to break them out of jail when they started worshiping, but that God can't resist a worshiper." that God was breaking in to be near them and sort of the secondary effect is now they can go on with their mission empowered. (laughs) Some of you need to have that kind of worship experience. Other examples of being caught up in play and how it changes non-play life. In Exodus 36, they were taking offerings for building of the tabernacle and people got so caught up in the spirit of giving. I may I live to see that day at Pilgrim Church. People so caught up in the spirit of giving that the finance team says, stop giving, we have too much stuff to do the work. We have more than we need. Put your hand on your wallet and your heart or wherever and say, Jesus, <laughs> help me. Can you imagine an offering so caught up that the church says, I actually heard of one church, a friend who was in our church in Sioux Falls before then was in Denver, and that church was so wealthy that they actually told people, stop tithing, stop giving. Uh, you can only give, you know, like reduce your giving and give more uh, to these other things. God, do it here. Amen. <laughs> so, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 is caught up in a vision, not knowing if he was in the body or out. That's state of play. Like that is textbook state of play. I was caught up in a vision. I didn't know whether I was on earth or in heaven. And God spoke to him, empowered him, gave him a word, and then sent him back into his normal life. The woman anointing the feet of Jesus in John 12, she's overwhelmed. She pours this incredibly costly ointment on Jesus' feet. She is caught up into the experience of Christ, and she doesn't regret it, and she has changed. The treasurer Judas was mad about this experience. We could have sold it, and I could have skimmed some off, but she instead dumps it on. That is extravagance of being caught up in the thing and empowered. And her story is told to this day. Mary at the feet of Jesus versus Martha, she chose the better thing. There's a time to be caught up. Okay, I got to land this. Matthew 18, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. 
And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was in response to them fighting about who's the greatest, who has the power, who has the authority, who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand, the seat of honor and the second place of honor in heaven, in the kingdom of God. Jacques Sermon says this, people who are not open to play cannot enter the kingdom of God, again paraphrasing from Jesus. There's a time to let yourself be caught up into this. Structured and unstructured, the joy of doing something not for a performance, not for a competition, not functional, not to accomplish some rationalistic goal or utilitarian reasons, but simply being caught up. And we get caught up in the joy of God and we're empowered, whether it's common grace in sport and art or whether it's in this revealed grace of Jesus when we worship where you can have true life change if you let yourself get caught up in it. Finally, what hinders play? Well, number one, what hinders play is taking yourself too seriously and not cultivating the joy of the Lord. If you think about the prophets, uh, I didn't write it in my notes, the reference, but some of you will know it, but I think it's Zephaniah. It talks about this idea of the joy of the Lord being your strength. The joy of the Lord being your strength. No, my knowledge is my strength. No, my ability to accumulate funds and education is my strength. No, my tribe is my strength. He said, no, no, no. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Get into the worship of God. Let it transform you. Send you back out into those other pursuits. Empowered differently. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's another textbook case of this play concept. Beautiful stuff happening here. Uh, Think about Paul when he says, what's the kingdom of God? It's righteousness. Get your relationships right. Get your relationship with your body and others right. Righteousness. Right right relatedness. This way and this way. Righteousness. Peace. The shalom of God. The wholeness of God. And joy in the Holy Spirit. The text in Luke 21, Jesus had sent out the 70 or 72, two by two to minister And they cast out demons, and demons left people, and healings took place, and people wanted to follow and join the band of disciples. And they came in, and they were like, we could cast out demons. How cool is that? We just made a bunch of people biblical scholars. How cool is that? Uh, Look at this. Now we have new disciples and all of that. And, And Jesus said, it's not about the demons being cast out, but it's about those that are now following me, that have experienced the joy. And it said this, at that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, for this is what you were pleased to do. The 72 he sent out had an encounter, and Jesus is filled with joy and lets the fruit of that draw him back into relationship, simply being with the Father and delighting with the Father, which will then in turn send him back out again to do more work of the kingdom. So, what hinders it? Take yourself too seriously. I'm all for solemn moments. I'm all for the lamentations. I'm all for uh, psalms that express all the emotions. But sometimes we value solemnity too high. It may have been a cultural value that we had. There's a time for it, for sure. But there's a full range of emotion and experience. Take yourself less seriously. See some of the divine joke of God creating and divine play, superabundance. I think the second thing that hinders play is leaders who don't play. I can be too serious of a person. I'll just be real honest with you. I can be intense. I've been told that. I think I'm a lovable, cuddly teddy bear. But I've been told I can be intimidating and intense. Take me out for coffee or whatever. 
you know, or I'll take you out. Depend- Who's ever economics are better, we'll treat each other, okay? Or, or we'll re- reciprocate. But leaders who don't play, who don't practice Sabbath rest and worship and delight and study beyond what their work, normal work is. Those that never wrestle with the relationship, thirdly, between non-play and play, that they work together. Creative work, creative play, made in the image of a creator God, his image and likeness, given a task to creative work, and then rest, delight, and play. We need those things working together. The creativity of the Lord in you and me. And I think, finally, I could add that there is issues of exclusion. I don't have time to unpack that. But we are about helping people flourish and come alive in Christ. And we have to trust that the work of the Holy Spirit will change us. That the work of the Holy Spirit, and we can trust the Holy Spirit to convict and to draw and to come alive. And sometimes we set bars so high, we have the wrong barriers, that people don't experience the life of the kingdom that we have to offer as a worshiping, living community. And so this morning, I invite you to embrace play, to learn it as a leader, to know that Jesus has come to make us dead to sin and alive in him, and part of that aliveness is affirming the playfulness of God in common grace and in the uniqueness of the worship of Jesus. And in that, you can be empowered and liberated and sent back out differently. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray. Now, to be honest with you, This is one of my favorite subjects, and I practice what I preach. I actually wrote a dissertation on this topic, so when I say there's a lot more I could share about this in anything I just said this morning and things I didn't say, I really do mean it. (laughs) Um, But I think it's so important. Why did people grieve the fire at Notre Dame? Because it was art, and it, and, and it was a place of worship, and you could go in there even as a non-believer, and you could be caught up into the sense of the worship that has gone on before and the literal visual creation, the matter and spirit together. Caught up into that, and people sensed loss because there's something absolutely real about being caught up, as Paul says. Or as the John says at the beginning of Revelation, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was caught up in this sense of play with the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day. And then the revelation and the apocalypse, he begins to write this down. Get in the Spirit. Let yourself be caught up. Be empowered. Let me pray. Father, thank you for each person that gathered here this morning. And Lord, as we think and meditate on this concept of being caught up, be childlike in the right ways, embracing the kingdom of heaven, a different vision of reality which can happen in worship and being caught up in arts or sports or game. And that you've given that common grace experience to every human being, but so they can also yearn for something even deeper, a relationship with you of simple delight and joy of being the child of the king of kings and the creator. May this church be a place where there is freedom and challenge to be caught up in the spirit, and then sent out into our non-play aspects of life differently. And God forgive us if we turn it into performance, and God forgive us if we have not let your holiness also worked into our hearts and our bodies as well. So help us to seek your spirit, be empowered by that, that we might live into the righteousness of God and be those kingdom people that are marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Romans declares. 
Do your work in this body. I yield to you and your spirit and to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together this morning as we leave.